Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Would you please follow along in your Bibles as I read the text? But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We're going to spend two weeks at least on this text, uh, including probably next Sunday evening. We're not gathering here uh, tonight. We're in our small groups all over the cities. And by the way, if, if you have not uh, found your way into a small group at Bethlehem, uh, Daniel Runyon, who prayed the pastoral prayer, is the coordinator for small groups. His number is on the back of the worship folder and would love to help you find your way into a group where you feel at home and can be nurtured. But next Sunday night, we do gather, and uh, I'm going to let the text spill over probably into that. There's just so much here that if you're like me, you get to the end of this morning's message and you feel frustrated, like, whoa, there's so much more you didn't get to there. I wanted to talk about verse 14, and I don't even touch on verse 14, even though it was something that occupied me a lot in my preparation. So today we ask the question, why should every member be ministering to the body? And next Sunday, it's how should every member be ministering to the body? Today, it's the, it's the goal question, the aim question. What's it all about? And next Sunday, it's what are the means and ways toward the goal, toward the aim? So this is more of the theoretical, what's it all tending toward? And next Sunday, what are the steps practically that I, as an individual at Bethlehem, take to get us towards that goal? So that's the plan. And then the spillover next Sunday night with some perhaps more practical implications that we didn't have time to, to weave in. Now, before I can pose the first question about why every member should minister to the body, I need to, I think, justify the assumption that I'm assuming that every member should. So even before we get to the why and the how, is it true? 
Is it true biblically that all of you, every individual in this room who's a Christian, is gifted and destined by the head of the body to minister to the body with a self-conscious effort to engage who you are in Christ for somebody else, to build them up and to build the body up? That is an assumption I'm starting with, but I want to go back and put some biblical foundation underneath it. And the foundation comes first in verse 7 and then from verses 11 and 12. Let's take those one at a time. Verse 7 says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the focus in verse 7, notice, is that each one, to each of you, grace was given not in accordance with your worth or your merit, but with, in accordance with the will of the head, who is the giver, Christ. He knows what's good for his body. And so he decides the quantity, the quality, the shape of the grace and the giftedness in that grace that you get. So this is a verse all about you as an individual. And that's real important. I'm not going to stress that this morning because this text turns toward, in a remarkable way, towards corporateness and towards wholeness in the body. But it starts with you as an individual. Every one of you has received grace and gift. Now, that's a foundation for the assumption. It hasn't proved the assumption yet, namely that every member should be ministering. But if this weren't true, that assumption wouldn't have anything to stand on. And so we've got a foundation. Each of us has been given grace according to the gift of of Christ. Just to put another text on the table from Romans to hear it in another way, Romans 12, 6 says, We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So a little different words, but you can hear the same idea. We have gifts that differ according to the grace, that's in verse 7, given to us, according to the gift of Christ. So our different giftedness here is in accordance with God's sovereign grace as he, through the head, parcels out what is good for the body. Now, verses 11 and 12 make explicit the assumption that I'm trying to undergird, namely every member ministry. Uh, I'm skipping over verses 8 to 10. We can talk about those maybe next week in the evening, but let me tell you what I think they're about in a nutshell. I think verses 8 to 10 are a description of Christ rising from the dead as a triumphant general over his enemies, taking captivity captive, and with a lot of wagon loads of booty behind him. And as he rises and moves out of the triumph, he takes the booty out of the wagons and he gives it to his troops. That's the gifts of verses 11 and 12 and Verse 7. So you've got a, a, a general who moved into battle. It looked like he had been defeated as he died in the grave. He burst out three days later, triumphant over all of his enemies. And he has all authority now. And with this authority and this booty, which is all things, he can give gifts to his people. Let's read verses 11 and 12 now. And he, Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, this is very different from verse 7. This is that shift I was talking about from the individual to the, to the group. 
In verse 7, it was grace being given to individuals to equip them. And here in verse 11 and 12, it is people being given to the body, to the church. Some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And they are charged now, these gifted people, to the body to equip the saints, the believers, all the people. Now, let's just camp on this word equip for a minute. Um, In the New Testament, the word equip in its various forms has two prongs. One is fixing what's broken. So in uh, Mark 119, it's used for the working on the nets that have been torn. And the other meaning is supplying what's lacking. That's, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, where Paul says, We desire to supply what is lacking in your faith. Same word, supply. So the the meaning of equipping has uh, repair what's broken and supply what's lacking. So ministers, apostles were given, prophets were given, evangelists were given, pastor teachers were given to fix what's broken in the church and to supply what's lacking in the faith of the saints. Now, we're going to talk more about this whole process of of how it all works in the the how of ministry next week. But I want us to to linger over this for a minute this morning and ponder the nature of the church implied here. Every one of you, according to verse 7, is graced by Christ with gifts that are meant to be used for the body. And then some in the body are given as gifts to the body to equip everybody to use their gifts and graces. Now, just think about this for a minute. There's a tension here that I want to draw out so you feel it. You might be tempted if you were told by an authoritative person like the Apostle Paul that you have been individually targeted by Christ And he paid special, particular, individual attention to you. He looked at you, he thought over you, and he designed a gift for you or several and a grace. And he put it in you with special, loving, tender affection and care so that you in your individual uniqueness would have a tremendously significant role to play. Now, you might have you had you heard that. Draw the conclusion, well, then I don't need any apostolic authority in my life. I don't need any prophetic encouragement in my life. I don't need any evangelistic training in my life. I don't need any pastoral nurture in my life. I don't need any teacher to apply the Bible to me. Jesus has dealt with me. Jesus is my teacher. I know the living Christ. We, one-on-one, together. What's this church stuff? I don't need it. I've got Jesus. Now, that won't work in this text. It just won't work. So it would, it would be a jumping to an individualistic, proud, self-created conclusion if you took verse 7, which is a glorious truth, and elevated it to the point where you said, well, fully on all those offices in the church. i got Jesus. I don't need those people. Equip me? We need equip me. I'm not broken. We need to supply what is lacking in me. 
So I want to, I want you to hold those things in tension because that is the truth. You are gifted. You are uniquely graced individually by the living Christ and you are lacking and broken. That's reality. So this text keeps together the individual dimension and the, the corporate church Dimension. Verse 12. Now, we still haven't got our justification for the assumption yet. I'm, I'm just sort of moving around. Verse 12 goes on and shows what all this equipping of the saints is for. Why do they need to be fixed? And why do they need to be supplied? Answer, for the work of service or the work of, of ministry. So those of us who are charged as vocational ministers in the church cannot say, oh, good, I have supplied something that's lacking and I have fixed what is broken. The job is finished. Church has happened. Whereas this text says the job is just beginning in a sense. That once the, the saints are fixed when they're broken and supplied in what's lacking, they now begin the work of the ministry to the body. Now, this is, this is a remarkable thing. I don't know if this hits you the way it hit me yesterday as I was working on this. The picture of the church here is, is it something in pretty bad shape. Do, do you sense that behind all these layers of need? You got the first layer where Jesus comes to individuals and they don't have any grace. They don't have any gifts. And he gives them grace and he gives them gift. That's layer one. We're bankrupt. We don't have any grace. We don't have any gifts. And he comes and he gives them to us freely. Layer two is he looks out on the church and he says, there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of lack. So I will give people, I will give pastors and teachers to help equip those people. That's layer two of need, brokenness, lack. And then layer three is you think, well, that's enough. You know, the leaders can do that. Well, it's not enough. Layer three is now, once you've been equipped, you are to do the work of the ministry to, to the building up of the body of Christ. you got a third layer. You think, my goodness, we really are in trouble. And that's exactly right. And it's so encouraging because the only kind of church I've ever seen in church history is a church with layer upon layer of brokenness. Layer upon layer of lack and need. Lacking in gifts and graces. Needing leaders. Needing body life. Needs just oozing everywhere in the church. So behind these three provisions of, of grace... You have layers of, of need. And I want you to see that so that you don't despair of the church. It's not surprising what you see. Paul saw it. Jesus knows about it. He's the head. He feels it. And the reason there were gifts, the reason there are leaders, the reason there's body ministry is because there's so much need. Now, I think the, the assumption is now justified. Namely, that every member is a, a minister. Every member is graced in verse 7 so that he could come to the end of verse 12 and know why he's there. 
namely for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. So your ministry now is to build up the body, and we need to go on and ask, why all this ministry? We just answered it in a word, and we need to unpack the word, namely the upbuilding of the body. So the question today is why minister, and the answer is build up the body of Christ. Just make sure you see that at the end of verse 12, under the building up of the body of Christ. So let's just spend the rest of our time thinking about what that means. The first thing is to say what it does not mean. And if, if you're a Bible kind of person, you might think that it means building up my neighbor, the guy or gal who's sitting next to me here. Say something encouraging and get, build up their faith. And I don't want to minimize that because that's a, that's a wonderful truth in the Bible. For example, Romans 15.2 says, let each of us Please his neighbor for his good, for his upbuilding. Very same word that you've got right here. So a very individualistic kind of upbuilding. You've got a person, and the goal is don't squash them, build them up. Don't discourage them, give them hope. Don't tear them down, lift them up. Build people. Let what comes out of your mouth not bring any difficulty or pain except what is good for edifying, building people. In truth, that's not what this text is about, at least not mainly. This text is about building the body, not just the individuals in the body, but building the body. Now, this is a much harder thing to grasp. It is for me, anyway. I'm, I'm an American, and I am shaped largely by my culture of individualism, and I can handle looking somebody in the face and not putting them down, but putting them up. I, I, can, I understand that. But if you tell me that I am supposed to use my ministry so that there's a corporate dimension to this thing that's different from and over and wider and higher than the individuals getting built up, that the body as a whole is transformed and built up, then I'm, I'm starting to get out of my element here. And the categories don't click, and I hear words, but it's not doing anything inside. Words, words. And yet, I feel very much like, though I'm out of my element, sort of, in talking about this verse, these verses, that I, I, I can say the words, and I can point, anyway, toward what I think they're saying, and, and ask you to join me in prayer and study over the next several weeks to see if there's something here we may not even have dreamed of. Verse 13, this bodybuilding at the end of verse 12, building up the body, is until, do it until, we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, there, there's this corporate dimension. Strive to build the body toward a unity of faith. So this is not just an individual person being targeted here. Toward the unity of the faith, and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a mature man, not men, not people, not plural, one. I think it's Christ. Unto a mature man, grow into Christ, grow into who he is, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of of Christ. Now that verse is a strong confirmation of my point that the goal of body building is corporate transformation, 
Not just individual transformation. Corporate shaping of the body. Unity of faith. Unity of knowledge. Let's just stop on that for a moment and ponder that in relationship to contemporary life. That is a very politically incorrect phrase. Unity of knowledge. No way. Mm -mm. Roosevelt High is... My son goes to Roosevelt. You know, they cancel classes, cancel homecoming, have a big powwow two Saturdays ago, weapons in the hallways, a lot of chaos. You know, not easy to be a student at Roosevelt. So big parent meeting, and they send us a, a long list of things they're going to do now to respond to the students and the different factions. And uh, you know what the operative, politically correct phrase is in all that material? It, it isn't unity of knowledge. <laughs> it is diversity. Diversity sensitization and uh, multi-this and multi-that training. Today, anybody who comes along and says that the ideal is the unity of knowledge, especially knowledge about something as explosive as knowledge of the Son of the living God, is simply not correct. You cannot, you cannot make unity of knowledge a goal today. You must cultivate multi-perspectivalism and multi-culturalism and multi-views on everything. That will make for peace. Now, Paul, at least in the church, will have nothing of it. He says that the, the use of your gifts is to build the body unto, toward, with the goal of unity of faith and unity of knowledge. Every effort towards unity that minimizes the unity of knowledge will not build the body. It will undermine the body. Now, I have a sense. Here's a little unauthoritative prophecy. I have a sense that we are reaching the crest of the wave of indifference towards truth in evangelicalism. Or another metaphor would be, we are reaching the bottom of the curve in indifference towards knowledge, truth, theology, doctrine. Let me uh, quote a paragraph from an article in the most recent issue of Christianity Today, it's an excellent survey, by the way. If you want to figure out what is evangelicalism and what's happened in the last 50 years, read this article in Christianity Today. Here's a quote. Fifty years ago, evangelicals were fully engaged in battling modernists' attempts to detach Christianity from historic orthodoxy. So modernism, liberalism, those are sort of synonymous terms in the history of evangelicalism in the last 50 years. And the essence of it is the effort to detach Christianity from orthodoxy so that you can preserve the forms of Christianity and call yourself a Christian and leave the, the doctrines that are offensive to modern people. That's the essence of liberalism. This kept evangelical concerns centered on the content of Christian belief, on the propositional truths of Scripture. Today, evangelicals seem far more interested in worship, 
This has led in two different directions, a movement toward the liturgical by the intellectually inclined and a movement towards the charismatic by the average churchgoer. Both represent a shift in emphasis away from knowledge about God toward experience of God, end quote. Now, that's right, I believe. And what's wrong with that right statement is that there's experience is okay. The quest for white-hot affection is right. I believe that the apogee, the climax, the top, the goal of the universe's goal for your life is white-hot worship on your face before the throne. Not thought. However, what's right about this right statement is that the short-circuiting of the mind and of knowledge and of doctrine on the way to that white-hot affection and experience in worship, whether liturgical or charismatic, that is undercutting the power of evangelical witness in our culture. The foundations are crumbling while we're all lifting our hands in worship. And I'll never put my hands down again because I believe in affection for God. Now, why do I say that I think we might be coming to the bottom of the curve in the indifference that has pervaded uh, evangelicalism for 50 years, more or less. The reason has to do with an article that was in the Tribune yesterday. Got it right here with me. Some of you might have read it. Bible censorship turns the tables on zealots. Some of you know about what's happening up in Brooklyn Center, where a man named Gene Kazmar is trying to get the Bible removed from the schools. Uh, and this article is written to support him by two uh, members of Atheists of Minnesota, and he's one of that number as well. And it is hostile in the extreme toward the Bible and towards those who believe it. And the sentence near the end that sums up what they say goes like this. It is true that the Bible has some worthwhile material. However, those worthwhile parts could probably be contained in a pamphlet. And then they go on to talk about many of the things in the Bible that they regard as reprehensible. Now, the reason I think this article is a pointer toward the bottom of the curve is this. You just have to judge my subjective judgment here. I sense that this kind of hostile public statement against the Bible and against those who cherish it will increase in our culture. It's going to increase. In fact, I think the Tribune gives every appearance of approving of this article because in the little caption here under the picture, without any quotes at all, they simply say, the Bible is filled with divinely approved mistreatment of children. Filled. No quotes, just, just a statement from the Tribune editors. So this, this public statement of hostility and mockery of God's holy word will increase. And as it increases, 
I think something very significant is going to happen inside evangelicalism as people sense it. Number one, it's going to result in the recognition that we are not the big influential force in America that we thought we were back in the year of the evangelical. We're just not. There are lots of evidences of born-again people in America, but we aren't touching the power structures of this culture. They are hostile in the extreme toward us and regard us as more threatening than the Ku Klux Klan to the American way. Second, there will therefore begin to be re-emphasized in the church truths that make us distinct, and we will begin to realize the folly of omitting hard truths, which we've been doing for a generation, and watering down things so as to appeal to secular culture, realizing they're not biting. They are not biting. They're not taking the bait of our watered-down, milk-toast evangelicalism. It hasn't worked. And knowing that, I mean, as that becomes more and more obvious to the church, the church will step back and say, I suppose we should probably embrace truth again and begin to articulate it with some substance that would be an answer to articles like this. You know, ask yourself, how do you know anybody, do you know anybody that for the last 40 years has been working hard on an article or a book that would be a good answer to this. I don't. It's on the shelf. The whole issue is on the shelf. While we all uh, try to stir ourselves up to feel good about God and solve our problems. and It won't stay on the shelf. It hasn't been on the shelf in the past. There have been great defenses of the scripture, there will be again, some of you will write them, I call you to that. In the middle of verse 13, we have this phrase, to a mature man. We are to use our gifts to build the body, which means to attain unto the unity of the faith and unity of knowledge of the Son of God, unto a mature man. Now, I said earlier, I think that does not mean any one of you or me. It means Christ. Here's the picture I think Paul has in his mind. I think he sees Christ as the ideal human being. He sees him as a a full, complete, mature person with a, a stature, a measure that is full, That's the way it ought to be. And then he sees the church as the body of this man, this perfect ideal man, Christ. And he sees the body as very imperfect. It's very broken, very lacking. And he says, now the goal of the church, the body, is to grow or be built into a body fit for that man of which it is the body. That's what I think it means when it says, unto a mature man. This is really hard to get hold of for us individualists because we're talking about a corporate man here, a corporate personhood, which is Christ. And we are to be that. I I struggle. I think it means something like, let's figure out how to use our gifts 
for one another so that what results is not little individuals who are Christ-like here and there, but a corporate reality which in its esprit de corps, it's the spirit of the thing, has the spirit of Christ about it, has the love of Christ about it, has the strength of Christ about it. In a nutshell, has the personality, the corporate personality of the mature man, Jesus Christ. Now, can you get a handle on that? That is slippery to me. I, I'm not sure what I'm even saying, but I think that's the idea here. That as a body, we're not just isolated Christ-like individuals. At a, as a body, there should be a spirit about this thing, a spirit about the church, a personality to the church locally and worldwide that is like Christ's. Personality, mature and whole and complete in knowledge and in faith and in love and in hope, righteousness. Now, all I can do as we close here is say, would you join me in praying toward that, meditating on that, working with that idea, testing that idea in the scriptures, asking how, which is the question I'm asking for next Sunday, how can an individual do that? How can you now go home and say, all right, who am I and what are my gifts and what is my grace? And I'm just a little teeny weeny invisible part of this massive thing. And I'm supposed to do something so that we move toward this mature manhood, Christ, and be the personality of Christ in this city as Jesus, if you were here, I welcome you to join me in this quest for an amazing reality. Let's pray together. Father, I long so much for this awesome truth here of moving the church toward unity of faith, unity of knowledge, and into the mature man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and fill this body with yourself. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would expand your character among us, your personality, your love, your grace, your truthfulness, your righteousness, your authority. We submit ourselves, Lord, to your word. I pray for those who mock it. I ask that you would suspend for a season your judgment, that there may be time for them to repent. I ask that we would pray earnestly and bear witness with love and conviction towards all those around us who heap scorn upon most holy things. Guide us on through this week, Lord, and build your church, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.